You can open your Bible, if you will, please, to the book of Genesis, chapter 12 again, and it's going to be another starting point for us. Last week, I preached on the fulfilled prophecies of the Bible. Let me start again. The great events that are prophesied in Scripture that have already come to pass. 27% of your Bible is prophecy. 27%. That's over one-fourth of the Bible, almost a third. And when you think of that, that involves over 8,000 verses in your Bible that are prophetic. Some of them have been fulfilled, and others of them have yet to be fulfilled. Last week, I spoke to you about fulfilled promises and prophecies. Now, today, I'm going to deal with the unfulfilled prophecies of the Bible, except that I'm not going to get very far, because last week I dealt with seven of them. Today, I'm only probably going to deal with one, and then we'll catch others here in weeks to come as I will continue to speak to you, probably in the evening services on the subject of prophecy. You know, there's about nine or ten wars that are prophesied in the Bible that have not yet been undertaken. For example, in Psalm number 83, there is a war where all the neighbors of Israel attack them. Many uh, experts on Bible prophecy today wonder if what is happening in Israel right now is not the Psalm 83 war. It certainly bears certain characteristics, but it takes a little time for those things to unravel and for us to be able to determine specifically. But today, I want to talk about a yet-to-be-fulfilled prophecy that is so important. And I might say that this is such an exciting time to be alive if you believe the Bible for a Christian. Now, I know in many ways it's a discouraging time. It's a dark time. I understand that. But in another sense, it's a very exciting time when you can watch the news and look at your Bible and wonder, well, now, is this it? Are these events lining up? And so, it, to me, it's, it, it just is a wonderfully exciting time as I consider the prophetic Scripture. And so today, I want to begin for a few minutes here, though, to give you a, sort of an overview, sort of a 30,000-foot altitude view of history, because I think you need to get that in perspective in order to understand the last two-thirds of the message or so. And so, let's begin at creation. From creation to the flood, which is only the first, what, six or seven, eight chapters of the Bible, but from the creation to the flood, if you put it in terms of time, it's about 2,000 years. About 2,000 years, a lot of history. A third of the world's history occurs in the first eight or nine chapters of the Bible here. And at the end of that 2,000 years, God dealt with the world in judgment. The judgment was in the form of a flood. Now, during that 2,000 years, God dealt with all of mankind. He wasn't specifically dealing with the Jews or the Gentiles or the church. He was dealing with all of mankind, if you will. And for 2,000 years, He dealt with them, but everything that God told them to do they didn't do. And so the world became very, very corrupt, very, very wicked. It's 
described in Genesis 6 as every imagination of the thoughts and intents of the heart was evil, and God judged with a cataclysmic flood. You know the story of Noah and the flood. After that, the nations began to develop, people began to multiply, but God had to judge them again because they all met at the Tower of Babel and they decided they were going to worship another God. They were going to worship the stars and the heavens. Astrology became the religion of the world, and so God scattered them again, not with a judgment as severe as the one in the flood. And then we come then, so we start at the flood, from creation to the flood, 2,000 years, from the flood to Christ, another 2,000 years. I'm trying to make it simple so you can remember these things. From the flood to Christ is another 2,000 years. But during that time, God did not deal with all of mankind. God dealt with Israel primarily. And we begin here in Genesis 12, and we see the beginning of the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel began in Genesis 12 and 1, the Lord said to Abram, who was a pagan at that time, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of you a great nation. And he's talking about the nation of Israel. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and thou shalt be a blessing. I will bless them that bless you. I will curse him that curseth you, and that's been true down through history. Those who have blessed the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, have been blessed of God. Those who have cursed them have been cursed of God, and I could name names like Hitler or Pharaoh or Haman, or you can go through your Bible and just pick them out. Those who turned their wrath against Israel were cursed of God. Those who blessed Israel, like the United States, England, and others, they were blessed of the Lord. And in verse number 3, he says, I will bless them that bless you, and curse him that curseth you. And in you, in Abraham's descendants, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And they certainly have been, number one, through Abraham and through the Jewish people, through Israel came our Bible. This is a Jewish book that we read and worship God from. And secondly, our Savior, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, came. Remember, he was a Jewish man. And when you hear of all the anti-Semitism and hatred toward Jews around the world this morning, you remember that, they, that God said, if you bless them, you'll be blessed. If you curse them, of course, you will have the curse of God upon you. Now, so God worked primarily with Israel for 2,000 years, and that's your entire Old Testament from the time of Genesis 12 right on through until the end. And so the Old Testament is primarily a Jewish book. Now, it ended again in judgment. What was the judgment at the end of that period of time from the flood to Christ, that 2,000 years? The judgment was the cross. And I want you to get this. Every sin that had ever been committed, past, present, future, was placed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and He was judged there. The wrath of Almighty God fell upon the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Imagine that. The wrath of Almighty God fell on the cross. That's why it was such a horrible thing, is God, through Jesus Christ, took upon Himself the punishment not only of me and you, but of all of the people throughout all of history. And so that era, that dispensation, if you will, ended in judgment at the cross. God took that judgment upon Himself. Now, He also, in 70 A.D., I believe, brought His punishment upon the nation of Israel for their rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. When the Romans entered the city and they scattered the people and burned the temple, and the Jewish nation went out of existence then for another 2,000 years. So, from creation to the flood, 2,000 years. From the flood to Christ, 2,000 years. Both times it ends in judgment. Now, from Christ to the present day, 2,000 years. Isn't that interesting? And if you add the millennium, 1,000 years, that would be 7,000 years. And that's why many of the old Bible scholars believe that the entire history will be, the history of the world will be carried out in about 7,000 years, which means then we are very near that change into that millennial period for the last 1,000 years. But from Christ to the present, 2,000 years. Now, God changed His focus, and instead of working with Israel, He began to work with Gentiles. He worked with the church, and so we call this the church age. And from the time of Christ until today, we've been during the church age, and we call it also the age of grace. Now, he told us how it would end. He said the church age, the age of grace, will become like the days of Noah. Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes, or before He comes, it will become like the, it will become like the days of Noah. What were the days of Noah like? Well, it was universally corrupt. And there were wars, and there was violence, and there was immorality, and there was lawlessness. The people were absolutely obsessed with pleasure and material things. They were so obsessed with this life, they had no time to think about eternity or the next life or God or His purposes. Also, the Bible teaches us, primarily in the book of Revelation, but in other places as well, that at the end of this era, Satan, through his proxy, the Antichrist, will basically rule the whole world. He will dominate the whole world. And he will focus a hatred and anti-Semitic spirit upon the Jewish people until he will almost wipe them out. Over in the middle of the book of Revelation, you see this. They get down to a very small number because there's such hatred for them universally. So to make that really current, when you see these gigantic, gigantic, <laughs> when you see these gigantic demonstrations against the nation of Israel, when you see this growing tide of anti-Semitism across the world, it should really concern us. It's more than just an item in the news. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. This hatred of the Jews, which nobody can explain. A group of people, terrorists, go in and kill 1,400 people immediately. 
injure thousands more. Who, who knows how many more will die of their injuries? They behead babies. They blow up everything that they can blow up. And yet, across the world today, the majority opinion is that they're wrong for defending themselves. How do you explain that? You can't explain that except for a satanic influence that is gripping the world. And it's not just America, it's around the world today. Irwin was telling me, the missionary, last night as we ate dinner, he was telling me about the same thing is happening in New Zealand as far from America as you can possibly get. And so this era of history, this dispensation, will become like the days of Noah. And for a brief time, it will become so wicked that Satan will actually rule the world, turning his hatred especially toward the Jewish people, but really dominating the whole world through the Antichrist. You know about that, at least in general. And guess what? Again, that epic, that era will end in judgment. And so every era of history begins, and then after a period, men become increasingly wicked, and it ends in judgment. Now, what do we call the judgment that God is going to send upon the world in our time? It's called the Great Tribulation. It's a seven-year period at the end of history when God's judgment, His wrath is going to be poured out upon the enemies of Christ. And he will cleanse the earth, even the physical universe, the environment, if you will. He will cleanse the earth, and he will prepare it for the reign of Jesus Christ who is going to come and rule on the earth and show people how it should have been had they obeyed him through the years. And that's the way it will end for most of the earth. But for believers, for Christians, the church age will not end with the great tribulation it will end with the rapture. It will end with another event. Christ will come in the air. The dead in Christ will be brought out of their graves first. And then we who are alive, the Bible says, will be caught up to be with the Lord in the air and to be with Him forever. Now, why does the Lord do that? Why is He doing, why is He carrying out that kind of plan? Because God is removing his people from the judgment to come. Just like when he rained down his judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, before he rained it down, what did he do? He removed Lot and his family. Just like before Noah and his family perished in that judgment, God removed them by providing the ark for their safety. And just like all of those illustrations, before the great tribulation falls upon this earth, a horrible time, God is going to remove his people, his bride. He's not going to punish his bride. Judgment is not going to be on his saints. The judgment is going to be on the unbelieving, the wicked, the Christ-rejectors. Now, let's look at the rapture. Where do you find the rapture in the Bible? It's a fam- uh, everybody talks about the rapture 
And, and so often I can tell they've not really read what the Bible says about the rapture. They just know a lot of uh, people are going to be going. So let's go over to the book of John. You're familiar with that, chapter number 14. And in John chapter 14 and verse number 1, Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. Hey, stop a minute. That's a good passage for you to put in mind even today, isn't it? With all that's happening in the world, let not your heart be troubled. He's comforting us. You believe in God. Yes, we do. Believe also in me, and we do, Lord. And in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I'm going to prepare a place for you. And until he comes, I assume he's still preparing. And if I go and prepare a place for you, Mark it in your Bible. Circle it in a red pencil if you have one. I will come again and receive you unto myself. Where I am, there you may be also. That's the rapture right there in the words of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now turn with me to another passage, the most thorough passage describing the rapture, and it's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Turn there with me, please, 1 Thessalonians 4, and I'll begin reading there in verse 13. And I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who are asleep, and that means dead, those who are deceased as Christians, that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. Notice every one of these passages tell us not to be troubled and not to sorrow. So don't let what's happening in the world get you down. Over and over it says we're not to be sorrowing about those things. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, that's the gospel, isn't it? Even so them also who are dead in Christ, sleep in Jesus, will God bring with him. And this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent or precede them who are asleep. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. My dad used to say they have six feet further to go. And so I guess that's a good explanation of why the dead rise first. And then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up. Circle those two words. Caught up together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And he ends it again with a word of comfort. Don't be troubled by the news. Comfort one another with these words. Now, the word rapture is not in your English Bible. The word rapture comes out of the old Latin Vulgate Bible, where the word was rapio, rapio. And it's translated, that same word is translated in our English Bible, as caught up. So that's why I told you to mark those two words, caught up, and draw your little line out there if you have room, and just put, that's the word for rapture. It describes what the rapture is. It means to snatch away or to catch something and to do it rapidly, to do it quickly. And so that phrase there in verse 17, caught up, describes the rapture for you. And through the Bible, there's been other, quote, catchings away. I think of Enoch in Genesis chapter 4. I think of Elijah who was caught up to heaven in a, in a fiery chariot. You remember that story? I think of Philip who after he witnessed to the Ethiopian jailer, he's caught up 
and moved to another place uh, there in Israel. I think of the Lord Jesus Christ himself in Acts chapter 1 when he ascended to heaven. It says he was taken up. And it's a little different word, but it has the same context. It has the same idea that something is suddenly snatched away and removed from the earth. And this is, the, this is a vivid description of the rapture here, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And so when I'm standing out there in the graveyard, I'm officiating at the burial of one of our people, and I know they're saints of God. I know they love the Lord. They live for Him. They believe in Christ. What passage would I read? I read this 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 most of the time because it comforts us. Notice verse 18. The point of the rapture is not to bring people fear. The point of the rapture is that people would be comforted. And so I read that passage at a burial, as part of the burial ceremony, that we're going to be, the dead in Christ are going to be resurrected first, and then we'll be caught up together. Now, let's go to another one. Go, go over to First. Corinthians, if you will, with me, and chapter number 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and the Bible speaks again of the rapture, and I'm going to read to you in verse, beginning in verse number 51. I'm going to read a little more than we have up there. I show you a mystery. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep or die, but we shall all be changed. And the very bodies that we live in will be changed, even if we're alive. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible. That means never to die again. No corruption, no seed of death in the, in the resurrection body. And we shall be changed. This corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality, and then, and when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? And he says, therefore, in verse 38 or 58, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For you know that your labor is not in vain. God is not going to forget us. One more scripture I want to show you on the rapture, and I want you to go to the book of Revelation because you'll find it presented in an entirely different way in Revelation, but yet I believe the same event. And so in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, I won't, obviously I can't read all of that, but the Lord comes and speaks to seven churches. Those seven churches are representative of all of Christianity throughout the church age, from the time of Christ until the end of, until the rapture. And Christ's final message here is given to these seven churches representing the church age from Christ up until the rapture. And everything here is about churches, chapter 2 and chapter 3. Now we go to chapter 4 and look in verse 1. After this, after Christ's message to the churches, behold, a door is opened in heaven. A door is open. Heaven opens up. 
And the first voice which I heard were as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, a voice in heaven. The heavens open, and the voice says, Come up here, and I will show you the things which must be hereafter. There's the rapture, I believe. God opens up the heavens and says to the people of the church age that he's been talking to, come up here. Now, in chapter 4 and chapter 5, it is a description of what happens immediately after the rapture in heaven. And the saints of God are there, and they're worshiping the Lamb of God before the throne. How do I know that? Because it doesn't say it directly, but I want you to go to chapter 5 and verse 9, and it identifies who is in heaven, who was caught up. They sung a new song saying, Jesus, thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and you have made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth with you. Who are the people that are in heaven that, that he's showing us here in verse 9 and 10? They're redeemed people. They're people who have been saved, people who are saying, thank you, Lord, for coming to the earth and shedding your blood on the cross for us. And so you see here that heavenly scene where God's saints are gathered home, where the heavens are open, and he says, come up here. And the saved of all the ages, the redeemed are there worshiping the Lamb. Now, this is significant. In chapter 1, we have Jesus, a presentation of Jesus. Chapter 2 and 3, we have the church age and all the churches and what it represents. In chapter 4 and 5, the scene is in heaven People are worshiping him who have been redeemed. And then the church is not mentioned. Saints are not mentioned again. Christians are not mentioned again until you come to chapter 19. And in chapter 19, the heavens open again. This time, nobody's going up. Somebody's coming down. And in chapter 19, the Lord Jesus Christ returns to the earth with the armies of heaven is how it's described, the saints. People dressed in the white linen, representative of their redemption. And they come back down with the Lord Jesus Christ to the battle of Armageddon. But they don't engage in it. Jesus just speaks a word and wins the battle. It's over. And then he sets up his kingdom. So that's the rapture. Now, here's the significance of it. Look up here. Don't miss this. At the rapture. Every truly saved, believing person on the earth will be removed from the earth. There will not be one saved person left on this earth at the instant, the moment of the rapture. And you say, so? What's the significance of that? Well, the Holy Spirit, where is the Holy Spirit right now on this earth? He is indwelling the hearts of saved people. When all the saved people are gone, a great deal of the Holy Spirit's influence will be gone too. I don't want to completely eliminate the Holy Spirit because He is God. He's omnipresent. But 
the vehicle through which he works is Christians. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And when every Christian is gone, the influence of the Holy Spirit is largely removed from this earth. Think of what that means. That means that if everybody who professes to be a Christian sitting here today is truly saved, this church will be empty. The Sunday after the rapture, I hope and pray there won't be a soul here. I do think there are places that call themselves churches that they will hardly notice it because they will not have It's not been a gospel-preaching church. People don't know anything about salvation. The Bible is not open very often. And when it is, all those passages that make people feel good are preached. And so the Sunday after the rapture, there will not be a single Christian worshiping the Lord on this earth. They'll be in heaven worshiping Him, chapter 4 and chapter 5. There'll be nobody preaching the truth. There'll be nobody preaching the gospel. Here is the worst thing from my view. All moral restraint in the world will be gone. What is it that holds back sin right now? And 2 Thessalonians talks about this, but I don't have time to go there. What is it that holds back sin? It's preachers who are preaching the truth and warning people. It is Christian books that people have available to them where they are reading the truth of God. It's the lives of other Christians. Those of you who are truly living a separated, godly life in the community, you don't realize the profound influence you are having upon other people around you. If people can look at you and say, he or she is different from the rest of the world's people. There is a reality, a power, an influence, a testimony that you have, and all that will be gone. It'll all be gone at the rapture. Something else will happen at the rapture that's noteworthy. In Matthew 13, Jesus gave the parable of the sower, the statue we have on our front yard here, the one who is sowing the seed, and he's standing on the world. We're taking the gospel of the whole world, Florence, South Carolina, New Zealand, and so on. And some of that seed falls on good hearts, and people are truly converted. But there are three other categories there, hard ground, rocky ground, thorny ground, where people hear the seed, they reject the gospel, And many of them even profess to be Christians, but they don't have fruit in their life. There's no life in them. They've got a profession with their mouth, but in reality, there's nothing going on in their life. And at the moment of the rapture, there'll be the separation of the wheat that will ascend to heaven and the tares, which will stay on the earth. And the question everybody ought to be asking themselves often is, Am I a wheat or am I a tear? Am I truly saved? Am I indwelled by the Holy Spirit? Have I truly been regenerated and born again in the power of God? 
Or am I just a professor who, oh yeah, I believe Jesus died, resurrected, born again, uh, rose again, and all that stuff. But all it is is an intellectual assent to the facts of the gospel. But there's never been a regeneration in your life. It's one, two, three, pray. I feel so convicted because I'm afraid that the plan of salvation has been so abused by people who were sincerely trying to be soul winners. But they just present it to people like, here's these facts. Jesus died on the cross, buried again, buried for three days, rose again from the grave. Do you believe that? Okay, let's pray. You're saved. No, 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 my friend. You can do all of that. But it's coming to a realization of who Jesus really is before he died for you. And that once you accept him and you become a true Christ follower, it's more than you just saying, yeah, 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 I believe that. And nothing changes in your life. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away, and all things have become new. We're not perfect. None of us are perfect. I've been saved now for a long time. I, I doubt that I've ever lived a day when I did not sin in some way, in word, thought, motive, in some way. But Jesus took care of that at the cross, but he knows my heart. And I'm not laying down in the gutter and wallowing in it and enjoying it and then come to church on Sunday morning. And you ask yourself, when that rapture happens, am I going to stay or am I going to go? Am I a wheat or am I a tear? It's not my purpose to sow doubt in your mind at all. But it is my purpose to challenge you about the reality of your faith. Because if everybody who says they're saved in America, if everybody who says they're saved in Florence, South Carolina, were truly saved, this would be a different town. What's the purpose of the rapture? This is important. Look it up in your Bible again with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter number 1. 1 Thessalonians 1. We looked at chapter 4, but let me tell you what the purpose of this is. 1 Thessalonians 1 and 9. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had into you and how you turned to God. See, here it is. Here's what I've just been preaching. You turned to God from idols to serve the true and living God. See, negatively, you turned to God from idols, the things that men worship, and positive to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. So we're in that stage right now. We're waiting. Who was raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivered us. Okay, here's the purpose of the rapture. He delivered us from the wrath to come. Circle in your Bible. What is the purpose of the wrath, of, of the rapture? To deliver us from the wrath to come. What is the wrath to come? The wrath to come is the tribulation period. The judgment when God's going to uh, judge the world. Look with me now in chapter 5, same book, verse 9. God hath not appointed us to wrath, Christians, but to obtain salvation, deliverance by our Lord Jesus Christ. So that tribulation period when Satan will briefly rule the world for about four or five years there through the Antichrist's, the man that he will empower, 
the man who will be absolutely, totally, demonically possessed and controlled and empowered. Over half the world's population is going to be killed during those seven years. They're going to perish. There's going to be nuclear war. The Bible doesn't say that, but I think I could convince you I don't have time. There's going to be worldwide famine. There's going to be pestilence. How many more pandemics? There is going to be natural disasters. All of that's going to happen in this seven-year period, most of it in the last three and a half years of that period. And the promise to the church is, I'll keep you from the hour of trial, Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10. I'll keep you from the time of God's wrath poured out upon the wickedness of this world. And then the other purpose of the raptures I've already said is in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 18. If you have this hope in you, it brings comfort. Praise God, I don't expect to be here for the tribulation period. Now, I know there's some people that believe that, you know, they believe that Christians are going through that. Have at it, brother. But I want to be out of here, don't you? I don't want to face that. And just like God warned the people of Noah's day, and they didn't listen, Oh, Noah preached 120 years and had eight converts, and they were all just his family. And just like in other times, there were warnings from prophets and from God, and, and, and people were forewarned. And today, across the world, the gospel's being preached. How many are listening? How many really believe that there's going to be a time of God's judgment upon this world? I don't think very many people percentage-wise really believe that. So following the rapture, what's going to happen? Well, the saints that are in heaven, two big events there. One is called the judgment seat of Christ. Judgment there is not to punish us. Judgment there is to reward us. It's the, the Greek word bima, the bima seat, which was at the early Olympics of the Greeks, even back in Paul's day. The winner would come up, and he would receive a garland, and he would receive a prize. He would receive a reward. And the bema seat for Christians in heaven is not going to be a time of punishment. It's going to be a time of reward. Every Christian will be rewarded for the things that they have done for the Lord in this life. 2 Corinthians 5.10, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And then there'll be another event during those seven years in heaven for the raptured. And it will be what's called the marriage supper of the Lamb, Revelation 19. When all the, the people collectively that are saved are called the bride of Christ, and they will be presented to Jesus, there will be a marriage, spiritually speaking, when Christ and his bride are united for all of eternity. And then Christ will come back to the earth and set up his kingdom after the second coming. Now, real quickly, the question on everybody's mind is, well, when? When is this going to happen, Pastor? You know, there's not much disagreement among people who believe the Bible 
about the fact of the rapture. Everybody believes in a rapture. If you believe the Bible, you have to believe that. But there is a disagreement about when it will come. There are the people who believe in the post-tribulation rapture, that the rapture comes at the end of the tribulation, that the rapture and the second coming are essentially the same event. I could show you 10 or 12 differences between the rapture and the second coming of Christ that the Bible clearly states. I just don't have time for that right now. Then there are others who believe, but if you believe in the post-tribulation rapture, that means Christians have to go through the tribulation period. That redeemed people have to endure the wrath of God. And he said he would save us somebody from the wrath of God. Then, then there's another view. The tribulation is in the middle of the, or pardon me, that the rapture is in the middle of the tribulation period, right before the bowls of wrath are poured out in Revelation 16. Then suddenly in the middle of that terrible time, people will be raptured. I have presented to you today what I believe the Bible teaches. If you take a literal view of every scripture, you're just about going to have to conclude the rapture comes before the tribulation. We're pre-tribulation rapture people. Christ removes his people from the wrath to come, 1 Thessalonians. Now, we don't know them when. But we know that there are trends that are happening in culture and society, politically, uh, socially. And we know that we can look at those trends, we can open our Bible, and we can compare those, and we can make reasonable deductions. God is a logical, rational God. There are two trends especially that I think you ought to be watching for. One is globalism. Anything that leads to the world coming together it could be a trend toward the Antichrist. He's going to unify the world. And you're seeing that. The Great Reset is a plan to do that. And by the way, it is still being carried out by very, very powerful people. It's no longer a joking matter since I preached on it two or three years ago. So any, anything you see that is bringing the world together economically, spiritually, politically, then you, you look at it and you study it and you study your Bible. It could be very significant. And the other is any major event that involves Israel. Israel is God's time clock. And when Israel goes to war, every war is potentially potentially, I said, connected to end-time wars and end-time events. For example, people have been saying to me ever since October the 7th, do you think this is the Gog-Magog war? The Gog-Magog wars when Russia with a group of people that join with them from the Arab world comes down and invades Israel. And the answer is, I surely don't know. This is too early. We can't know that. I don't think it is. Because one of the things Ezekiel says is when that happens, Israel will be dwelling in unwalled cities. Israel will be secure in her own mind. And boy, she hasn't been secure for a long time. So I would doubt that, but things can change. That's why I'm real cautious, and I don't, I don't prognosticate much. I'm not a prophet. 
I'm a student. I study prophecy, but I'm not a prophet. I would think that this has a better chance, what's happening over there now, of being a fulfillment or attached to the Psalm 83 war, but I don't know that either. You just have to wait. I know, though, that here's what the Bible teaches us, that the rapture is imminent. It's at any time. And so he, over and over, he doesn't say watch for the Antichrist. He doesn't say watch for the end signs. He says watch for me. I'm coming. And I'm coming when you don't expect it. Turn your Bible to Matthew 24. I know I'm a little long but I don't apologize. I can't cover this. I mean, you know, if you want the whole deal here, it takes a little while. Matthew chapter 24 in your Bible. Here's your attitude toward the rapture if you're going to follow your Bible. Matthew chapter number 24, verse 33. Likewise, when you see all, A-L-L, that's important, all these things, the rebirth of Israel, 1948, the times of the Gentiles, 1967, that I preached to you from last week, the alignment of nations that are coming into biblical alignment, anti-Semitism and hatred for the Jewish people, globalism. When you see all these things, know it is near, even at the door. So I can say to you without any fear of contradiction The rapture of the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe, is near. I don't know when. Go with me, if you will, then down to verse number 36. Of that day and hour knoweth no man, not even the angels in heaven, but my Father only. And he reiterated again in verse 42, Watch therefore, you know not what hour your Lord comes. It's almost Halloween. And after Halloween, then you'll see Christmas decorations start going up. And I can't believe how early some people put up their Christmas decorations, but they do in early November. When I see Christmas decorations in November, I know Thanksgiving is nearby, right? There's no Thanksgiving decorations, but there's Thanksgiving is right around the corner if we're putting up Christmas decorations. And when I read the signs of the second coming, because there are no signs of the rapture, the signs are all about the Lord's return. And so when I see the signs of the second coming, Christmas, further out here, I know that Thanksgiving The rapture comes before Christmas, and I know that the Lord's coming is near. Does that make sense? Are you rapture ready? Are you rapture ready? When when I preach on the rapture, does it bring a thrill or does it bring fear? Does it bring confidence or does it bring doubt? It is to be our comfort and our blessing in our life. He that hath this hope in him purifieth himself. What does that mean? 
If you really believe this, it affects the way you live. I'm not going to be out here in open sin. I'm not going to be in some place, flagrant idolatry, flagrant immorality. I'm not going to be doing that if I really believe Jesus could come today or tomorrow. It's going to affect the way that the Christian lives. I hope you're living. I hope your life is being purified by this hope. Number two, if you're unsaved, the thought of being left behind should absolutely drive you to the cross. I mean, immediately. It ought to drive you to the cross where you can know that your salvation is secure. Would you bow your head with me in prayer?